The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. An energetic young boy snaps the branch off of his dad's shrub. In his haste to cover up his accidental deed, he hurriedly shoves the branch into the ground. To his amazement, a few weeks later, the branch had taken root and began to flourish. This is the incident that ignited Joe Lample's gardening passion onto the path of one of the country's most recognized and trusted gardening and green living personalities. His passion for living a greener life is evident to a nationwide audience who watches Joe in his current role as creator, executive producer, and host of the Emmy Award-winning PBS series, Growing a Greener World and previously as host of Fresh from the Garden on the DIY Network. Joe also shares his know-how on NBC's Today Show, ABC's Good Morning America, The Weather Channel, also through his popular books, and his podcast series, The Joe Gardener Show. This is episode 45, Preparing Your Spring Garden with Joe Lample. We'll be back with Joe after this. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Joe, how are you preparing yourself and your garden for this coming spring season? Taking deep breaths. <laughs> I obviously don't need any motivation to want to be out in my garden, and I'm very excited about it right now. It's a year-round garden for me. We've had some really cold temperatures lately. So finally, we've had some winter kill out there. So the first thing I'm going to be doing is cleaning up what's in the beds that has died back. Nothing gets wasted here. It goes into the compost bin. So I'm excited that I have some built-in feedstock ready to go there. And then we'll do some general weeding, and then we'll start adding some top dressing of compost. In the meantime, I have indoor seeds started and seedlings growing. Around mid-March, we'll be planting our brassicas and our cool season crops, and we'll be off to the races, and I cannot wait. And I got the greenhouse coming, so that adds a whole new dimension to my life. Long time coming, bucket list item for sure. It's about to happen. What size greenhouse are you getting? 12 by 32. It's a Yoder Belt greenhouse, and they make those greenhouses in their factory in Arkansas. And so it's coming already built on a trailer and being pulled by a dually pickup truck and then put in place. <laughs> and it's the biggest, to answer your question, it's the biggest one that they can bring without getting special permits and extra wide load restrictions and things like that. So they just slide it off the trailer into the flat ground? They have this thing called a mule, and it's a little mechanized rig that can maneuver a massive greenhouse like that with precision right onto the pad. In my case, I'm having a pad poured, and that's it. I've seen videos on it. I won't believe it until I see it in person. So you can bet I'm going to be videoing every bit of it because I'm excited about it. Yeah, and and those oxygen highs that you get when you step in the greenhouse the first time in the morning, those are great. (laughs) 
<laughs> I may just put my bed in there. <laughs> just bring up a coffee maker and I'll be living in there. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Never leave. Never leave. <laughs> no, right. You mentioned compost. Do you ever run out of feedstock for those? I used to. I'm about to add a third three-bin system. Listen, I could use every bit of compost in all three of those bins. I'm just trying to focus my compost on my food garden right now. That uses up pretty much everything I've got. The three large three-bin pallet composting systems take up a good bit of footprint too. And that probably holds most of the feedstock I can come up with. But between all the cleanup from the vegetable garden throughout the year, which is a year-round garden, the shredded leaves that I add in the fall and in the spring when I have a separate pile off to the side, that's carbon feedstock. In the fall, especially, I have a mower with a bagging attachment that I connect during that time. Usually I grass cycle, but I like the nitrogen inputs from the really good new growth and the lush growth and fall of my fescue. So that's my nitrogen input. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't take long to fill up those big bays. That's good. Let's say you have more compost than you can use on your beds. And I don't know if anybody ever has that situation. I was going to say, I'm not sure that happens, but I'm kind of close, which is a good thing. I mean, you want it as much as you need. Compost can't go bad is where I was going with that. If it does go bad, it doesn't sit around long enough here for that to happen. Right. But you do want to use it within a couple of years and that's no problem here. Yeah, I would think not. What are you implementing in your garden that you learned this last season? I'm doing more straw bales. I'm doing more grow bags. And I may even utilize some of my raised bed space to put grow bags on. That sounds weird. But the reason for that, Craig, is that these beds, even though there's 16 of them and they're large, I grow too many solanaceous crops. So tomatoes, they occupy over half my garden and then peppers get another third or fourth of it. That's just too much of the same thing year after year for soil borne diseases. And it's caught up with me need to give my soil a break from those crops. I just haven't rotated out enough to give them that breathing room for those fungi and bacteria, the bad guys, to starve out. So they're in there, fusarium wilt and others. I still need that space for all the stuff I grow. Because that footprint is still there, it doesn't mean I have to grow down into the soil, but I can utilize the footprints. I'm not sure how that's going to look because aesthetics is important to me, especially with the TV and the video and the other things we do here photography-wise. I haven't quite figured that out yet. I also have a deer problem outside of my vegetable garden, and I don't have a deer fence. I just can't grow more food outside of the fenced-in area of my food garden without the risk of deer there. That's my plan for now. And I got to come up with a real solution soon. I am going to add grow bags around the interior periphery of the garden more. I do that anyway. Straw bales and grow bags. I've got room to go all the way around the perimeter and that'll give me a lot more growing space. That's the plan for now. Can you bury a grow bag and roots not penetrate through it back into the soil? I know at one time, ornamental plants used to be grown in grow bags in the ground. I wondered about that. I've thought about that. And I'm wondering if the roots get to the edge of the grow bag, they're going to have that moisture and they're going to sense soil on the other side. Got grow bags. I just haven't thought about how dense they are so that if there's soil on the other side, they may or may not go through. You know, they're air pruned. It's a good question. And I don't have the answer to that yet. But that is a that would solve my aesthetics problem. That's for sure. What tools do you usually take to the garden when you head out? 
without a doubt, on my hip, I have a sheath. Usually it's a three-pocket sheath. Picture the typical pruning holster that just holds your pruners. Well, I'm always using my pruner, so I've got that. I have a section for my soil knife. That's the second compartment of it. And I have micro snips. So if I'm doing thinning or I'm taking off suckers or something like that, I have real long, narrow, mini pruners. Three tools I always walk out with, and so that's why I need that triple sheath is what I call it. The other thing I'm typically doing is either hand weeding, so that doesn't require any tools, but I have a scuffle hoe, basically what's called. It's also called a winged weeder or a delta weeder because it's a diamond hoe. It's got sharp edges on all of the four stainless steel sides and a long handle with a pistol grip on it. So it makes surface weeding on my mulched covered ground around my beds really easy for weeding. And if I just do that once a month or so, I really can stay on top of my weeding the mulch helps, of course, and I refresh that a couple times a year. That really does it. And those are my main go-to tools. They're always with me or they're close at hand. The scuffle hoe, are you doing that monthly, even if you don't have weeds there, or is it just when weeds are present? There's usually enough weeds within a month's time for me to do a light surface scuffling, and it doesn't take long, and it makes it a lot easier to get those weeds because they haven't really rooted in much at all. And I sharpen the diamond blade before I get going, and it just slices through it like butter. That long handle gives you great leverage combined with a pistol grip. DeWitt is the maker of the tool. It's just great. A farmer showed it to me, and I fell in love with it, and Now I have two of them because weeding is always more fun when you have somebody to weed with. So yeah, weeding players. Yeah, whoever's there with me, uh, they they get to play with one too. They love them. (laughs) (laughs) And it's going across between the mulch and the surface of the soil, or are you getting in the soil? Yeah, I go right down. I get the blade just beneath the mulch layer. It's severing the roots at the soil level, which is obviously just beneath the mulch level. I use hardwood ground up mulch, and so it's easy to knock it back in place. You start a lot of seeds every year. Which ones are you most excited about this year? I just love, love, love my tomato seeds. All the different varieties. They germinate quickly. They perform quickly. They start looking like something pretty fast. That's always a good thing. And then within four weeks, it's time to transplant them up into a bigger container. The smell of tomato foliage as you're working with them, running your hands across the leaves. To me, it's like the best cologne ever. And there's nothing better than that. Plus the anticipation of what they're going to be doing in early July around here. I'm just very partial to my tomato seedlings and seeds. Always try a new variety. So it's always exciting. Throw a lot of peppers too. Right now, as we speak here, got 10 trays, 500 seedlings, probably a thousand because I double up on all my seeds of pepper seedlings that are well on their way. And then I grow, as I said, I grow my brassicas. Um, I'll be starting those next week or so. So in six weeks, they'll be ready to plant outside in mid-March. And I'm doing a lot of perennial flowers. One of the things I'm doing this year more than ever is I'm growing uh, native perennial flowers. Some are starting from seed inside that have been stratified in the refrigerator. Others are in the the winter selling practice. A combination of techniques that I use are the milk jugs. And then Heather McCargo with the Wild Seed Project up in Maine, she's got a simplified technique where you just take those seeds, those native perennial seeds, and you put them into a clay pot or in my case, just wide plastic pots and lightly sew them and then cover them up with some coarse sand and put something over the top to protect them from foraging critters. And you leave them out there. And, and, you know, many of those seeds need to be stratified too. So they need that period of cold anywhere between 30 days and 90 days. I don't have that much time left right now, but I can get six. 60 cold nights between now and when they want to germinate. I'll just leave those alone and let Mother Nature water them and 
provide the cold and the ebbs and flows of the weather. I have lots and lots of perennial seedlings this year with the greenhouse edition, more of that. Seed starting is one of my favorite things in the world. I think I've, I've got a problem there. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> I admit it. Hello. It's fascinating to me. I think everybody that gardens should get to know seeds thoroughly because when you understand how a seed works, what it takes for a seed to initiate germination, I mean, think about a seed. It just sits there potentially for years before it ever gets the cue or the clue that it's time to start germinating. And that happens because there's moisture imbibing into the seed, there's oxygen taking place, the soil temperature is just right. And there's opportunity for gas exchange and the soil moisture is appropriate. But without all of those conditions at place at one time, it's not going to germinate. It just sits there. When you understand what's involved in hitting the start button on that seed, that DNA, that message to the seed that it's time to wake up, and then why seeds don't germinate, well, you become smarter as a gardener. You become more intuitive. And then nurturing that seedling along through those next six weeks or so under your care, inside or out, and then planting it out. There's a lot happening in six weeks from a seed planting to germinating to transplanting to planting out to its final home. There's a lot going on in six weeks, and you're right on top of it to be there to see it. It's under your watch. I think I've learned more from starting seeds and getting them to the point where they're planted outside than really any other part of my gardening experience, taking the time to understand that process, because it's really just that it just goes from there. It all starts with the seed. That's why I'm so fascinated with seeds. The new greenhouse will become full of flats of new seed. For this year, I'm going to be moving because I don't have it yet, but it's coming just in the nick of time for me to take the thousands by that time of seedlings that I have in the small 50 cell trays or whatever and bump them up. And then hopefully it'll be warm enough with supplemental heating in the greenhouse that I can leave them inside there to get the natural light. There's nothing better than natural sunlight coming through the greenhouse to really amp them up in time for my first plant sales. I can't plant thousands of vegetable tomato seedlings in my garden. My daughter and I have a little tiny business where we sell locally in the farmer's market and to friends and neighbors around here who rely on us. We're their dealer for their vegetable starts. <laughs> and uh, so that's exciting and fun and a good bonding opportunity for my daughter. And she gets to make some college and car fund money out of it. I may be mistaken on this, but didn't she hasn't she gone to college? And I was wondering if you were going to continue that. Yeah, yeah. No, she's suspended that temporarily. Ongoing opportunity to get back in the game there. Right now, she's confiscated my truck. She's kind of taken it over, <laughs> claimed it as hers. And I think I'm losing the battle. I'm trying to fight back on that. It's a 2004. It needs ongoing TLC. And so that's not free. And she's got a boyfriend. So there's where that money goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot of maintenance to go on with the car and the daughter. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but she's awesome. And so we have a good time with that. You've just started the Online Garden Academy up for another season. How is that going? Oh, my gosh. It is going great. Intensive online courses. Basically, if somebody had a topic that they were re really interested in, like the next one up is Growing Epic Tomatoes with Craig LaHulier. And it is such a comprehensive course from start to finish, actually before start to finish. And it just walks people through the entire process of not just learning how to select the seeds and the varieties of the seeds and where to get those seeds and how to sow them and grow them out as seedlings, but then to plant them out and care for them through the entire growing season and then what to do to know the perfect harvest time. And then after that, even recipes and all of that stuff, it's all video-based. It's just incredible. 
This is the first year that it's being launched in its entirety. Craig and I worked on the course all last year. We weren't able to start filming it until May. And by then, you know, seed starting season is over and many people have tomatoes well on their way out in the garden by May. We were able to recreate a lot of the uh, early parts of it and then track the activity in real time from Craig's Garden in Asheville, North Carolina and Hendersonville and me in Atlanta. And we had our crew making trip and I would always go to Craig's place and we would document what's going on there a few times during that season. And he'd come here. The students that came on board just absolutely loved it because it was real. It was completely unscripted. And then we would have live weekly office hours through the entire growing season. And that went on for months. It was Craig and me on live Zoom calls with our students and they would submit questions in advance, hang out with them for an hour and a half every week for months. It was a blast for all of us. And now it's become this tight community. This year, coming up here in another few weeks, we're relaunching it because we were able to go back and finish the course and pick up all those modules from real time on the early part of the season. And so now we get to release it as if people were going through it themselves in real time, which they will be doing because they'll be starting their tomato seeds and seeing what we're recommending and all of that. So we're super excited about that to bring on a new class of students to meet our existing class, continue to build a community. And of course, one of the signature things we do in the Online Guardian Academy is we continue to add and update the courses every year, even the Growing Epic Tomatoes course. It's enhanced since we did it last year with a lot of new information. So everything gets bigger and better and the existing students get lifetime access as well. So they get the benefit of all the updates as well. So that's very exciting. We have several courses in addition to that one, but that's the big one coming up here very soon. When you got the great Craig LaHoulier co-instructing that with you, it's fascinating because that guy knows his stuff like nobody else. He really does. Yeah. The thing that I like about it the most is that it's a lifetime membership because I can grow tomatoes this year and let's just say things don't go right or I run into some challenges and next year I can make those adjustments mm -hmm. and still be a part of the group just from yeah. now as long as I decide I want to do it. Yep. And that's the beauty of it. There's no come back, oh, you got to pay another something for a renewal fee or anything like No. I mean, it's just a one-time tuition, whatever that is, and that's it. But you get the benefit of all the additional resources we put into the course to continue to enhance it. One of the things that I love about it is that I mentioned this community term a lot, but that students get so engaged because we have a separate online community and they get really tight there. They give us suggestions all the time, like, well, what about this? And what about, you know, doing a video on bricks and just various things? And so make note of everything. And then we have this ongoing list of things we want to do to enhance it. And we'll film new videos and we'll add that and update it to the course. And then the existing students go back and see there's new information in there and things change. We keep it current. I think that's just such a great feature of the courses that we offer. And, and the students have told us time and time again how much they love that part of it. I'm really looking forward to that. Good. If you'd like to go deeper into Joe's Growing Epic Tomatoes course with Craig LaHoulier, find out more at joegardner.com slash tomato success. There you will find the course curriculum, frequently asked questions, and find out how others have benefited from their experience with the course. There is also valuable weekly interaction with Joe and Craig LaHoulier to keep you on the right track. You'll want to take advantage of this limited time, significantly discounted early enrollment price. So go now to joegardner.com slash success. Even if you're not a frustrated tomato grower like me, this course will take your tomato passion to a whole new level with the expert help you have been looking for. This is a self-paced course from seed selection to mouth-watering delight. 
There are weekly live Q&A sessions, lifetime membership, updates, and solutions from the experts. Go now to joegardner.com slash tomato success and take advantage of early enrollment discounts before they expire. What is your earliest garden memory? Gosh, man, that's a great question. And one popped into my mind. I followed my dad around in the yard when I was a kid, eight years old. I had three older brothers. They were off with their buddies and they didn't want to hang out with a little kid. So I'd hang out with my dad. I call him the weekend warrior because he wasn't a gardener, but he liked a nice lawn and bushes and all that stuff looking good. So I followed him around and then he went inside at the end of one Saturday and I ran around and my energy, I broke off a branch on one of the plants he'd just been pruning. I didn't want to get in trouble. So I didn't know what to do. I just stuck that broken branch down in the base next to the mother plant, covered it up and went running. (laughs) A little bit worried, but my dad wouldn't have done anything. But you know, when you're a kid, you don't know. So I forgot about that, but I came back upon that plant maybe two months later or something like that. And I'm like, it jarred my memory that that's where that had broken that branch. I was expecting to see a dead limb, but there wasn't a dead limb. And in fact, the limb that I finally identified as the one I broke off was sprouting new leaves. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? That just totally etched my moment in time where I said I was hooked on horticulture. And I'll never forget that. But it really happened that way when I was eight years old. And right after that, my dad sent me down to my Uncle Ray's house, who I didn't even know existed at the time, but he needed some extra help in his yard. So little did I know that he was a real big plant propagator of staghorn ferns. And if you live in the south or a tropical region, where I grew up in Miami, staghorn ferns are these awesome, massive ferns that look like the racks on deer bucks. They're beautiful. And he taught me how to propagate one. The day I was supposed to go over there and help him pull weeds, he taught me how to propagate staghorn ferns. And I was so fascinated by that. And I ended up propagating hundreds of those after that. That reinforced my love of gardening and my wonder of it all. And my love of plant propagation. That's what sticks with me from decades ago. That's the thing about gardening. There's just these wonders and these mysteries and these aha moments that hopefully stick with you. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, man. Such a great question. And you know what I tell my students is that, you know, there's really no gardening mistakes. They're all opportunities because if you can learn from something you did because you tried it, it doesn't have to work out. You just have to learn from what happened, try to figure out what didn't go according to your plans, and then you learn something. So that was time well spent. Right. You know, Craig, you got to kill it three times in order to really qualify as a gardener. You know, you got to move it around, experiment, all that. For me, there's one that stands out, and that was several years ago at this point in my raised bed garden that I have here. I have horses. One of the additions you can add to your garden soil is composted manure, and horse manure is readily available, plenty of it, and I had my own right here. I had my own factory for that. At the same time, I'm very, very well, and was at the time, that where you get your hay, the fields that grow the hay that feed your horses are many times sprayed with a persistent herbicide that is so persistent It's designed not to break down through the digestive system of the horse. And it's so strong, it takes years for the molecules to finally, you know, deactivate. In the meantime, though, it is an herbicide that's still persistent. The efficacy is still there. And it just takes parts per billion in the soil for it to kill broadleaf plants. It always warned every person, every group, every place I went to speak publicly. I would let people know this because people weren't aware of this. And it's a big thing. It can kill your plants and ruin your soil for years. Most often it comes into your soil through composted horse manure. When I built my raised beds, having warned thousands of people about this, I'm looking over at my big pile of horse manure that had been composting for a long time, admiring and just so excited to use this beautiful black gold as about a 20% supplement into my new soil for my brand new raised beds. And why I didn't make the association that, hey, just because you're Joe Gardner, what makes you think you're not going to have persistent herbicides in your composted horse manure? (laughs) 
But somehow I felt like it wasn't going to be in my horse manure. And you know how my mind tricked me? I would look over at that pile and I would see stuff growing out of the top of it. And I said, there you go. See, it's not tainted. Stuff's growing out of it, which means you don't have to worry about it. But the association I failed to make, and I kick myself every time I think about this, was those persistent herbicides are made to kill broadleaf weeds, not grasses that are growing from your piles. What was growing that I saw wasn't ever going to be impacted by a persistent herbicide because it wasn't a broadleaf weed. I added that horse manure to my beds, about 20% of volume, totally mixed it in, and then planted my tomato seedlings and other things too. It didn't take long because as soon as the roots from the containers that I had had them in spread out and reached and came in contact with my raised bed soil, I knew immediately. There's no mistake on the signs that you see. The foliage becomes distorted and wilted and really weird looking just is an obvious sign. And I knew it the second I saw it and I could not believe it had happened to me. When I discovered it, we were in the midst of filming for my television show out in the garden. And I'm looking at this and I'm talking out loud to my camera guy, what has just happened? I'm contemplating, what do we do? And he's going to me, dude, you can't show this. You're Joe Gardner. You can't put this on national TV. What are you crazy? He had a point, but the whole thing about this is, this is real. This is life. This is how gardeners learn as they go. And there are going to be mistakes. Even people that know what they're doing can make those mistakes. It's an honest mistake. So I said, you know what, Carl? I said, we're going to talk about this. We're going to show it. We're going to talk about what happened, why it happened. Because the main thing is everybody that sees this can avoid this happening to them. It's an expensive lesson for me, but it will save thousands of people from doing the same thing. And that's what happened. We put it into a show. Millions of people probably saw it. To this day, I get emails and messages from people who saw that episode and it saved them from having that problem. Or it happened to them before they saw the show, but then they realized what happened when they saw the show. So my mistake became an opportunity for people to avoid the same mistake when I shared that. Let me tell you, I'll never make that mistake again. <laughs> and if that's the win out of this, so be it. Yeah, yeah. You have all these garden beds and you're definitely not going to do horse manure in there. Where do you get your soil to fill those beds? Well, right now I just continue to supplement what's been there. It took me, by the way, about four years to mitigate or deactivate that persistent herbicide by continuing to turn it up, expose it to UV light, oxygen, and compost. Mm -hmm. Every year it got a little bit better, but it took four years for it to really go away. And that was on a fast track. Now, I started with such good soil, I used about 50% high-quality topsoil, 30% homemade compost, and then 20% was a mixture of worm castings and shredded leaves and rotten straw, not hay, and different things, all organic material. So each year, it breaks down a little bit, and, and there's a little bit less, and so I just come back with that extra bit of my own homemade compost. It takes about two inches a year to refill what diminishes and I just top dress it. I don't even mix it in. And that's all it takes. The microbes and the worms come and bring it down. And my garden is thriving. It's all about the soil. And I'm a big soil guy. Yeah. yeah the microbes and all that that you get going in there, the, the life in the soil. Yeah. You were saying not hay. And, and, the, and the reason for that is because it just hadn't passed through the horse. And you get the same effect that you, you're saying that not to do with the horse manure. That's right. If you left the hay in your bed and let it break down, that herbicide is just in the hay. It's not passed through the horse yet, but it's still in the hay. It's going to go somewhere. It's going to come in contact with your soil eventually. And at that point, that's it. Game's over. So mm -hmm. 
If you used hay, a lot of people don't even know the source of their hay, which is understandable. Not many people have a chance to meet the farmer who sold them the hay. Probably want to assume that it probably had herbicide in it. There's a way that you can know, not so much with the hay, but with like if you had horse manure and you wondered if it was tainted, Mm -hmm. you can do what's called a bioassay test, which is just a fancy way of saying, take a sample of that horse manure, mix it with some clean soil that you know is not tainted and make that your test specimen plant seeds into that or plant seedlings into it, and then have a separate container that is only clean soil that you know for sure doesn't have any trace of any questionable horse manure. And then plant into that identically. You've got your control and then you've got your test sample. And then you just see what happens. You probably want to have three containers of each so you can really do a multiple test. And then just grow it out. And it just only takes a few weeks because once the seedling comes in contact with that soil or the seed grows up and it puts out its roots, you're going to know if it's got persistent herbicide in it and you've got a plant that's susceptible to it. Not all vegetable plants are susceptible to it, but tomatoes and beans and peas and some others are really you plant those and that's your canary in the coal mine. And that's how you know. If the seedling isn't affected in any way and you know it's a plant that would be affected if it was in there, well, then you can assume that that's a safe sample and you can go at it. It sure saves you years of grief from loading up your garden beds with stuff that you should have tested first. That's the way around it. Do you do soil tests as far as for pH? I do every couple of years. I'm just curious as to what's going on with my pH. And, and I use a lot of compost and usually my pH tests out slightly high. Mm-hmm like 7.2 maybe, it's close enough, but it's interesting because I don't really use any supplemental fertilizer and there's no real clay in there to bring the pH down. It's the compost that typically lives around neutral at 7.0, but in my case, whatever I'm using drives it up just a little bit, but it's never been enough to impact it in any way. So I don't worry about it, but I'd like to test just to know. Yeah, yeah. What do you wish people would do differently when designing and building, growing a garden? I wish that they would, and people have gotten better about this, but I wish they would rely more on focusing on building soil health because that just improves the ecology and the soil. It makes for a healthier environment to promote the life in the soil that is going to produce the nutrients that your plants are going to need versus relying on supplemental fertilization, especially synthetic fertilizers. We all need to be more aware as gardeners. I think it's incumbent upon us to not only plant for ourselves, but plan for biological diversity and stewardship. If we can take time to learn not only how to grow something, but how to do it in an environmentally responsible way, which means, you know, reducing your use of synthetic chemicals or eliminating those and certainly finding manual ways like with barriers and things to deal with pest control or planting a diverse garden or trap crops. You know, it's all about education, but there's so many things that you can do to invite beneficial insects in that are going to be the pest control for you. And there's things you can do to cut down on the opportunity for diseases to make it into your garden to some extent, and then to promote soil health that's going to produce healthier plants. That's not to say don't go out there and plant something because that's one of the biggest reasons people don't start gardening is they're overwhelmed or they're intimidated by the process. So they never get started. They think they need to know more than they need to before they start. And you don't. The main thing is to just stick something in the ground and see what happens and then learn as you go. But along the way, be mindful of the fact that there's a bigger picture out there, more going on related to gardening in the environment that you're gardening in that is going to help that garden and it's going to help the habitat around it. Gardening is a lifetime endeavor. It's a lifetime activity and avocation. God bless the people that discover that sooner than later, but it's never too late. There's plenty to know. No matter how much you know, there's always more to learn. And gardening is full of wonders and mystery and aha moments. 
it's humbling too. It's a great equalizer because it doesn't matter who you are, or how much you know, Mother Nature's in control. She gets the last word and we're all on the same plane there. I find it so fascinating and so exciting and I never get tired of it. I learn something new every day and I'm more excited tomorrow than I am today. And today I was more excited about gardening than I was yesterday. So I hope other people feel that same way too. And I know many gardeners can relate to that. For those that are new at it or haven't done it yet, just start and then figure it out as you go. How do you handle all the new ideas you're exposed to? I'm open to those, but there's science behind how I garden. So if it's a new idea, my first question to myself is, where's the science behind that new idea? Then I go from there. If it's just a new technique or something that maybe provides an easier way to do it or maybe speeds up the process a little bit, it's hard for me to think about what those things are specifically in real time. But as they come up, and believe me, I've got my finger on the pulse. I'm aware of a lot of that stuff that's happening. And I know people that let me know what's going on. I do everything I can to educate myself because not only am I wanting to know for me as a gardener, but as a communicator to other gardeners, it's important for me to not only understand it, but to vet it and know whether or not this thing has legs and merit before I'm going to start talking about it and share my two cents. I'm going to do my due diligence too before I, I buy into anything and especially before I share my thoughts with others. What led you to become a garden communicator? My mother is a teacher. She was not a gardener. I admired the heck out of her. She's one of the smartest people I've ever known and one of the most dedicated teachers I've ever met. Those are the genes I got from her. I don't know that she outwardly instilled in me this desire for gardening or teaching, but I sure love to garden and I think I'm a teacher. I think that I got that from her. And Selfishly, I want people to love gardening as much as I do because I know how much it fills me emotionally, intellectually, physically. Wonderly, if that's a word. <laughs> if I can somehow inspire others to that same love and passion that I have, and I can use my gift of teaching and communicating to do that, well, I want to do that. And I think I learned early on that I do that pretty well, and I'm told that. So that's good affirmation of that. And so because my passion is gardening, I want to use what I love to talk about as my platform to share with others. I've got split personality, I've got my horticulture and business background. Thankfully, my mother, that smart person that I mentioned, encouraged me in college to because I wanted to get just a hort degree. And she said, well, listen, that's all good, but maybe consider getting a business degree, too, because that'll give you other options out of school. And she was right. So I jumped into the business world offhand because that's where the recruiters were most interested. But I knew that was not for long. But while I was in business, I learned a lot of things that allowed me to use those skills to combine with my real passion of gardening and horticulture and teaching other people how to do it. So I was able to build a business around it and some ways to monetize that so that I could leave the business world behind for good and never look back. And so that's how that happened. I know that sounds like a long story. That's actually the short story of how that happened. That goes back now over 30 years. Growing a greener world, your first outlet for teaching? No, my first outlet was two television shows before that. I created Growing a Greener World because I just didn't think the shows that I had hosted before really were teaching it the way that I would want to do it if I had all say in the matter. My first public big outreach was when I was picked to host a new gardening show on DIY Network the sister station to HGTV. And that was back in 2003. They needed a host for this show on teaching people how to grow food. And every episode was a different featured crop. One whole episode would be how to grow tomatoes from seed to harvest. 
And it was a blast. And it was a really, really smart show that was ahead of its time because growing food in the early 2000s, it wasn't the thing to do. Now it's a big thing to do, but then it wasn't so much. And it was only going to be one year and 26 episodes. But early on, they realized, hey, people really like this show. And it turned into three years and 52 episodes. Prior to that, I, I never left horticulture. I just had a side business consulting and designing. That was some side money, but it wasn't real money. I got picked to host that show, you know, be the guy. And that's what really led to the platform that enabled me to have a big reach quickly. And that's when Today's Show started calling in Good Morning America and those kind of places because of that. While I had the opportunity, I used my business background to say, let's make the most of it. I don't want this to be a one and done. I really want this to be my new career because I'd always hoped it would be. And I just needed the door to open for that to happen. And it did. Fortunately, I went through that door and I'm in a big room now. Did you knock on DIY's door? That's a good story. No, I was contacted by someone who got a mass email from HGTV when they were looking for the host. They sent tons of emails out. And one of the groups they targeted for the email were the gardening communicators, the journalists, the media people that were writing about gardening. And one of them got that email and I'd never met her yet. She was starting a new magazine and she heard I was good at turf. I knew my grasses. And so she said, would you consider being a regular columnist for my magazine about turf care? I said, all right. So I hadn't even written my first article, never met her. And then she got that email and she knew about me. She invented me. And so she kind of knew my background and she, based on who they were looking for in the email, she emailed me and said, Joe, they're looking for you. They just don't know it yet. You need to contact them and throw your hat in the ring because I think you're their next host. So I said, what the heck? I watch every gardening show there is on TV. I've never been on TV before, let alone in front of a camera, but I know what they're talking about. I think I could maybe do it. So I convinced the producers to give me an interview and they set me up and brought the equipment and the cameras and the mics and the crew out. And this is dating myself, but they faxed me a script the night before for me to memorize so that when I got on camera, I could just do that like the show open. I did it in front of the mirror one time. I felt so silly. I didn't do it again. I did learn the lines, but I never looked at myself and never practiced like that. So the next day I showed up and they had me do it over and over and over with no feedback. And I'm like, what the heck? Don't they at least say, well, now do it this way or, hey, nice job. But could you do it? This? Nothing. They just had me just do it over. And they were it's like dead silence. It was like I was doing it to a mirror because there was no feedback. And then they took me off to the side and had me do an impromptu thing that was unscripted to see how I could do on the fly on my feet. And they had me do that over and over and over. Here's the weird thing. And then at the end of it, they said, OK, thanks a lot. We'll see you later. And I'm like, uh, any feedback? I mean, what's next? I mean, am I going to hear from you guys or what? So they said, well, we'll see. We're going to tell our producers about you. And if we're interested, we'll let you know. So I didn't hear anything for a week. And then they called me and said, hey, we're interested in you. We're continuing the search with females because we'd only been looking at males at this point. So that was another six or eight weeks of searching. They nailed it down to two people, a male and a female. I was the male they liked. A week later, they narrowed it down to me as the male because it just was at that point which gender they wanted to go with. That's how I got it. It was fun. It was great. It was one of the best things I've ever done. And it certainly launched everything after that. Tell us all the different things you've got going. We've already talked about JoeGardener.com and we talked about Growing a Greener World. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Growing a Greener World is a television show that I started uh, 13 years ago. It's a national show on PBS. We're in our 13th season, 200 something episodes. It's great. So I love that. I, you know, I'm the producer, the creator, the host, and I get to interview the people I want to interview, which is one of the reasons <laughs> I created that show. Uh, 13 years later, I've met some of my heroes and I can continue to meet the coolest people out there. We travel around the country to tell those stories. And so that's a real thrill for me. And that keeps me very busy through the year. But along with that, I'm juggling the online gardening academy with new courses in production all the time. And that's super busy. And we've got some really big ones in the works right now for release next year. 
And then there's joegardener.com, which is blogs and the YouTube videos and all that stuff. The big thing for me is my podcast, The Joe Gardner Show. And it's four years plus going, almost 250 episodes now. We've never missed a week. It's a lot of work, Craig, as you know, but it's a love of mine. And I get to talk to some amazing people, have great conversations like you. That's it. I mean, there's more, but those are the biggies. I have a great team. I could not do what I do without the most amazing team. Amy Prentice is my lead partner in crime, and she just keeps all the balls in the air and catches the ones that I'm about to drop and keeps the plate spinning. It's amazing. Great team. Yeah, it is. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I've got a couple people that I I really adore. You know, I'm almost reluctant to name because I'm going to forget. You know, under pressure, I'm going to forget some. Craig LaHoole, you're my friend, my good friend. I was an admirer of his long before I met him, but just his knowledge, his graciousness, his humbleness and humility. Elliot Coleman, an amazing market farmer in Maine. Margaret Roach, a good friend and just a wonderful educator. Paul James is a hysterical, funny, great friend now and and many others. But prior to that, Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring and Maria Rodale. I mean, these are people who are gardeners and environmental stewards too. And there's people out there that blazed a path ahead of me and just I admire immensely. And I know there's people I'm forgetting, but those are some of my very special people. Do you have an episode of Growing a Greener World or the Joe Gardner podcast that impacted you the most? Yeah, on both. An episode that I did on Growing a Greener World, the one we won our Emmy on, it was called The Green Bronx Machine. And there's a man in, in the Bronx, Stephen Ritz, who, long story short, he was a paid teacher in the Bronx. The students were troubled. They were overweight. They were underachievers. They were lots of home problems. And it was just a tough environment where these kids were growing up. They didn't want to come to school. Their diets were horrendous. It's the way it is. And Stephen had a real heart for trying to turn that around. And he was pouring so much of his life into those students that he was working six or seven days a week with the school. And the school finally said, hey, Stephen, you're working too much here. And it's kind of looking bad for the other teachers because they feel guilty because you're here all the time and they're not. And you need to fix that. And he was not willing to compromise his dedication to that. He decided, I got a plan. What if I was just a volunteer teacher? That would allow me to do what I wanted to, right? They said, well, yeah, but what are you talking about? He said, well, then I'm going to resign as a paid staff member. And as long as I can be a volunteer teacher and do what I do as often as I want, I'll do it that way. And so he did. Long story short there, every metric he was able to improve and everything that was wrong, he righted. And these kids started showing up every day and they were motivated and they were eating healthy because Stephen was teaching them how to grow food, not only outside and raised beds, but inside in their artificial growing environments. The kids were learning everything there was to know about that and engaged and happy to come to school and their grades were going up, their weight was coming down. They were taking recipes and fresh organic produce home to their parents and their families. And it just, it was a transformative life for all of these kids and they were graduating and on and on and on. But we told that story and in the process, I mean, it just moved me so much in the four times we went back to document that story. That translated because that's the one, like I said, the one we won our Emmy on and the one that people speak of more than anything else. And it was special to me. And then the the podcast, 250-ish podcast and all of them, I just love them. But the one that, that resonated the most was one recently with Rebecca McMacken, who is the director of horticulture at the Brooklyn Bridge Park. And it was a two-part podcast. I didn't know it was going to be two-part when I interviewed her, but it was such a fascinating conversation. I talk about it being the gardening and horticulture best practices 2.0. We all hear about 
IPM, integrated pest management, and the steps that we should do to garden in a way that has the lightest ecological footprint, but you can resort to the heavy stuff if you have to. And things that we do for keeping the garden clean and tidy and all of these things. But anyway, Rebecca and her team of talented gardeners and horticulturalists over the past 10 years that this park has been in existence have been learning as they go and discovering how to do things differently in a way that protects habitat and promotes diversity and brings in native pollinators and plants that they thought were extinct from the area that haven't been seen in years and years, but because they were in tuned and engaged in doing things that they thought would help invite these long ago forgotten about insects and pollinators and things. And they started showing up the way that they practice horticulture and clean up in a public space. It's cutting edge, but it's translating for people like us to do that same thing in our own little corner of the world. You know, we don't need to be in a big public garden to do the same thing. It is the future. It is the way that we think about how we do our cleanup and cut back and how we deal with leaves in the fall. And rather than shred them in the fall, we leave them alone because there's a lot of overwintering insects there that if we take them up, we kill them in the process. And it just was such a fascinating conversation that we get so many conversations and comments about and when we get back on the road with the show Growing a Greener World, we're going to go film with Rebecca and her team and document some of that so people can see it, not just hear it. That's just one. I mean, I, I could go on and on on both platforms. I'm so fortunate to do what I do, not only to garden as my profession, but at my avocation, but to have these opportunities to go meet these people where they are and tell their story and then put it out there for so many people to hear and then to teach too through the Online Gardening Academy. But it's very gratifying and motivating for me. I don't ever have to wake up and talk myself into going to work. I spring out of bed and I just can't wait to get started. And the feedback, the affirmations I get from the folks that we come in contact with is a real blessing. I'll do it until I'm composed. <laughs> so, so, so there you go. What amazes you about gardeners? They're such great people. They are the most friendly, open, kind people on the earth. They get the connection with gardening and the awe of it all, the wonder and in the joy in their soul that comes out when they meet a fellow gardener. And I can tell you, I never hesitate to go up to a stranger who's in a gardening setting, whether it's a community garden or they're working in their front yard or they're on their patio and I'm passing by. But I'm telling you, it's one sentence in and you've got a conversation going that just goes on and on and on. And it's effortless and it's mutual and it's dialogue. And those are gardeners. Those are real gardeners. And the other thing is people that weren't gardeners that just started, they're so excited because of the little wins that they have early on and they want to know more. And you just see that in their body language, in their facial expressions and their conversations. And those are the ones that get me the most excited and to know that I've been down that road ahead of them and that maybe I can help them a little bit. That's maybe why Online Gardening Academy for me is a really special place because the first course we ever did was Beginning Gardener Fundamentals because I want to reach those new gardeners to inspire them and encourage them that you can do this. It's just a joy. I love gardeners. I, they're my favorite people. Is there anything else I should have asked you? That's a good question. And I ask that of my people too. And you did a great job asking questions. Thank you. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely a gardener. And so you know what it's like to just start. But also know that perfection is a waste of time in the garden. You're not in control. You can give Mother Nature a run for her money, but that's the best you'll ever do. Always be open to new ideas. Never forget the blocking and tackling. Focus on building the soil health and just take it as it comes. Embrace it and welcome it and 
always, always don't be afraid to try something new because even if it doesn't work out, it's an opportunity to learn from it and then share that discovery with your friends and fellow gardeners. Joe, tell us how people may connect with you. Well, let me narrow it down, Craig. I'd say joegardener.com is the main website. Currently right now, we're very active. It is seed starting season. It is the launch season for the Online Gardening Academy. So the best place to learn more about the courses is joegardener.com slash learn. The last thing is social media. I'm most active on Instagram. So at joegardener, we'll get you there. If you'd like to go deeper into Joe's Growing Epic Tomatoes course with Craig LaHoulier, find out more at joegardener.com slash tomato success. There you will find the course curriculum, frequently asked questions, and find out how others have benefited from their experience with the course. There is also valuable weekly interaction with Joe and Craig LaHoulier to keep you on the right track. You will want to take advantage of this limited time, significantly discounted early enrollment price. So go now to joegardener.com slash success. Even if you're not a frustrated tomato grower like me, this course will take your tomato passion to a whole new level with the expert help you have been looking for. This is a self-paced course from seed selection to mouth-watering delight. There are weekly live Q&A sessions, lifetime membership, updates, and solutions from the experts. Go now to joegardener.com slash success and take advantage of early enrollment discounts before they expire. This has been Episode 45, Preparing Your Spring Garden with Joe Lample. Thank you, Joe. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.